I want to talk with you tonight about harmlessness. And I think to begin, I'm going to start with a poem by Romy, Rumi that, um, <laughs> that I actually planned on ending with, but I think it would be really sweet to begin with, with this poem, just to kind of set the mood for what harmlessness is in the big picture of things. It's called, I'll Meet You There. (laughs) You know this one. Good, good. (laughs) Out beyond ideas and wrongdoings and right doings, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in the grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase, each other, doesn't make sense. So last night, Sally talked about the, the Eightfold Path, and I'm going to revisit aspects of that path in respect to of harmlessness. And so just as a quick review, uh, there's the eight factors of the path, and those eight factors are categorized in three sections, panya, sila, and samadhi. And so I'd like to begin with the first section, which has two of the factors. And so this section is panya, or wisdom. And the second factor is intention or thought. And so Sally talked a little bit about that and how in each of these factors they have their own list, if you remember that. And in this second factor of wise intention or wise thought, uh, there's three components to it. And that is... uh, (laughs) Renunciation, loving-kindness, which Heather talked about a few nights ago, and then harmlessness. So you could say, in some ways, that this intention or this thought uh, is where the actions of harmlessness begin. And so we'll begin here with intention and thought. And we really see these intentions and thoughts here in the silence, don't we? It's all we really have. <laughs> well, I guess there's a lot going on in our, in our awareness, but we do uh, begin to notice just the quality of thinking and intention that motivates our actions and even sometimes our motivation to speak in interviews or in our yogi job um, or other inappropriate times, which you don't <laughs> aren't supposed to be doing, but it happens. And... Uh, we start to get really clear, this clear seeing of uh, the motivations of our thoughts and, and, and how that affects us. Sometimes I think of it as being a bit of a marionette puppet and my thoughts are holding the strings. There's this feeling of not necessarily in control those thought trains are so powerful. Those intentions to do can be so um, pervasive that they take over. You know, the, the wisdom and compassion part of us isn't necessarily driving the bus. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we see that again and again in our, in our meditation here. When I was thinking of examples of what that might be, two things came up. And actually, these have come up in a few of the interviews, and it just reminded me. Uh, One is something called the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta. And it goes kind of like this. (laughs) You're in your room, and somebody 
is slamming doors or shutting them a little too loud or it's somebody down in the lunch line standing just a little too close to you or there's just something about somebody that just rubs you the wrong way and you get kind of stuck on it and suddenly there's this whole story that emerges about that person they're doing it on purpose they're so unmindful it's a good thing they're here you know and there can be this whole um world that we create around this person uh, of course with this aversion being at the the heart of it and we can get really stuck in that we can spend a lot of time sitting there eating looking at them look how they're chewing you know take a breath <laughs> and we can <laughs> just get really absorbed into that and really lose our mindfulness another example of how our thoughts can kind of get away from us when we're not guarding them is uh, the VR. Anyone know what that is? Vipassana romance. (laughs) So it's kind of the same thing. (laughs) It goes more like this. You're sitting here in the hall and somebody walks in and they just, they look so good today. And you sit down and you think, boy, I have kind of a connection with this person. And you start thinking about it. And yeah, I think I might really like this person. I think they really like me. You're in complete silence, of course, so you don't really know this. But within a sitting, you can go from not knowing this person at all to, in your mind, having those first words what that'll be like, how you'll connect, what you'll do after the retreat, how you guys will be together, fall in love, get married, have kids, things don't go so well, there's a divorce, now you don't like them so much, and it becomes more of a VV situation. And then the bell rings. (laughs) And so our thoughts are really powerful. We can get pulled into these stories, into these Uh, make-believe worlds really easily without even knowing it. And so when we're not careful and not guarding those thoughts, um, these are just some fun examples of how they can lead us into actually kind of some harmful thinking, right? To feel uh, really intense aversion towards somebody is not a good feeling for us. To fall in love with someone especially in a circumstance where you can't even do anything about it. Uh, there's, there's that longing, that pulling towards something outside of ourselves is also doesn't, doesn't feel that great either. The hindrances, of course, are all involved and, and they all have their own flavor. And so I wonder if some of you have experienced any of those hindrance attacks whether whether it's that um, that clinging and, and greediness or um, that aversion to something or sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, and how those uh, mind states really affect our thoughts and our intentions. Maybe you've been driven by your hindrances in some way Uh, to take action. Maybe it was uh, through writing a note or something that you um, did in the the lunchroom to kind of soothe those hindrances. Something to just bring a little peace to them. And suddenly you've acted out of this um, impulse driven by hindrance. And so while we're here on retreat, we get the chance, it's really wonderful, this chance to reflect and see, wow, one minute I was just walking up and down and doing fine, and the next I'm in my room and I'm taking a nap, and I have no idea how I got there. It was just so strong. I just felt like, nap, that sounds good. I'm feeling kind of, this is kind of boring, I'll just do that. So we can get driven in many different ways. Or restlessness not being able to stay with whatever the, the whatever is being called for in the schedule, not being able to sit 
needing to get up and go do the other thing, and that's not satisfying, so we go and find something else to do. Maybe I'll go for a walk. No, that's not it. I'll go do yoga. Maybe I'll get a cup of tea. And we can spend an entire day just being pushed around by these hindrances, and our intentions and our thoughts are just driven in this way. So I want to read you something from the Dhammapada. We are what we think. This has been referred to, I think, a few times, but it seems really appropriate for this talk. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you. As the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. So just being led around by uh, those unguarded, those impure thoughts and intentions. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you. As your shadow unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. So I want to pay, um, I want to bring attention to this last line one more time and just how much these thoughts and actions will get into how this affects other people, but I want to start with how is it affecting us internally in our minds and in our body? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. So an untrained, an unguarded mind, it, it really leads or equals to that first noble truth, doesn't it? That dukkha. And we've seen it over and over again as we become quiet and pay attention when we're being led around uh, with that untrained mind or unguarded mind, meaning we're just kind of clueless to what's happening, then we end up in these mind states that are really unpleasant. It doesn't feel good to be there. It's dukkha, it's that rub, that friction I talked about a number of nights ago. So when we don't see through our mind's masquerade, it really fuels the cause of dukkha, that second noble truth. We aren't able to see clearly. We're not seeing with wisdom and compassion. We're not seeing how things truly are. Our perspective is clouded, it's colored, it's not seen clearly. So I want to move from that into sila, which is that second section of the Eightfold Path. And it has three path factors. Uh, Wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And for me, when I first read these three things, and actually most of the The way that I really took in the Eightfold Path um, before I really understood it was more like the Ten Commandments. Having been raised Catholic, it felt kind of like this don't-do list, thou shall not. But actually what this is is an invitation to investigate and actually develop this inner compass 
of um, being in the world that feels in line with our conscience, feels in line with truth. And so instead of someone saying, you know, you should not, it's really this opening to how things actually are, how, how it feels to act in a way that's harmful. And do we want to continue down that road? And how it feels to act in a way that's wholesome. And does that draw us more? Do we want more of that? And so as we go through this path and we begin to develop these factors, I think, and this is what Sally was was talking about, it just becomes kind of this natural inclination to want to go towards this sila, this, this harmlessness of being. Because it feels right. It feels good. It allows us to be with the flow of how things are instead of fighting against it. The Buddha talks of virtue as the blessing supreme and that it supports a mind unshakable, sorrowless, stainless, and secure. So I kind of imagine this bed of sila, of virtue, in which we, our mind, our body, is allowed to rest and relax in. A blessing supreme. I've spent some time in a monastery uh, just north of here uh, up at Ukiah called the Bayagiri Monastery. And it's always striking to me to spend time there and then come back into the world and feel this, this feeling of cleanliness within myself. And when I reflect on what it's like to be with the, the monks at this monastery and just the integrity of their practice and the way that they hold themselves, it's not stiff at all. In fact, they're a really funny group. But they're just so in line with harmlessness and attuned with dharma, truth, and as well as the nature that they're living in. And there's this real feeling of stainlessness, this cleanliness. And I think we feel that too, just being here. The mind, although you've experienced your ups and downs and hindrance after hindrance, mind state after mind state, there's something calmer there's something more simple. There's a feeling of collective integrity, this harmlessness that we've been just swimming in for the last month. And there's this place of safety that that's, that creates, this, this, place of, uh, or this place where we can really relax and rest our mind and our body. And it feels really good. Oftentimes when I leave retreat, I feel lighter. I just feel lighter. I mentioned that I was raised Catholic, and part of the deal was we would go to confession. And uh, it would be kind of intimidating to go into this box and then there's the priest on the other side and you couldn't really see him but you knew who they were because there was only one or two priests at the church that you went to so it seemed kind of silly to me but there you were and they you know wanted to know your sins and I was young and so my sins were well I pulled my sister's hair and I swore at my brother and you know I took too many cookies when my mom was looking things like that and so they're really minor things. But I do remember leaving feeling lighter. Like this weight that I didn't even know I was carrying was gone. 
that someone had uh, not just said, okay, you know, say your Hail Marys and be gone with you, you're fine now, but that someone actually witnessed and I, my, uh, my actions that were harmful, that I actually was able to atone for those in some way. And that, that feeling of harmlessness or being let go or letting go of those memories of harm or any thoughts that we've had that uh, feel harmful. Just being able to let those go or put them aside or let them settle a little bit. There's something that feels really good about that. And so we get to feel that while we're here. And you might notice it even more as you leave and go back into your regular life. Just something's a little bit different, a little bit lighter. So the first, the first uh, factor in this section, which would be the third in the list of the Eightfold Path, is wise speech. And the list within that factor is abstaining from lying, malicious or divisive speech, abusive or harsh speech, and idle chatter. And so some of you came out of the silence today, and I don't know what your experience was with it, but just from what I remember for, from coming out of long retreats and then all of a sudden you're in front of people looking at them really for the first time and you're asked to talk on something and it's usually something you know, pretty benign like how was your day or what did you eat for lunch or what are you going to after the retreat? Something pretty simple and yet it's just this explosion <laughs> of words and emotion and uh, your personalities came back, didn't they? <laughs> and it just comes out of, out of nowhere, it seems, right out of the silence. And there it is in a second. Our ability to express what is going on up here without needing to even really be that present for it gets us in trouble quite a bit, doesn't it? It's just so easy to verbalize. And so the Buddha actually, he talked a lot about wise speech because it was a problem just in his own sangha and his, uh, among the monks and nuns, just how people were communicating and, and how much harm comes out of our communication when we aren't being present with it when we're not attuned to our intention of why we're saying what we're saying, because it's just so easy to do. It doesn't require us to be that attuned. And yet when that happens, when we're not attuned, um, we have great potential for really putting our foot in it. And so I want to share with you a teaching that I really enjoy that is um, the Buddha's teaching to his older son, Rahula. And when he was eight, Rahula told a deliberate lie. And so the Buddha went and meditated for a bit, kind of cooled off. He's a good dad. And then he went to his son, and Rahula prepared a seat for him, as was the custom, the tradition, and put a bowl of water so that the Buddha could rinse his feet. This is part of the tradition. So after his father cleansed his feet, a little water was left in the bowl. And the Buddha asked Rahula, do you see this small quantity of water left in the bowl? And Rahula says, yes. And he says, as little as this is the spiritual life of someone who is not ashamed at telling a deliberate lie. So you can kind of imagine Rahula going, oh man, (laughs) gulp. The Buddha then threw out the remaining water and said, thrown away like this is the spiritual life 
of someone who is not ashamed of telling a deliberate lie. He goes even further, saying, turning over the bowl now, turned upside down like this is a spiritual life of someone who is not ashamed at telling a deliberate lie. And then last, he turns it back over, empty. As empty as this bowl is the spiritual life of someone who is not ashamed at telling a deliberate lie. That's pretty to the point. (laughs) He then taught his son, when someone is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil that he or she would not do. Therefore, Rahula, train yourself to not utter a falsehood even as a joke. Our words are really powerful. And not only that, our intentions behind those words are, they have a force behind them. What we say really does matter. And where it comes from, that intention really does matter. Wise speech can be... uh, a practice as lay people that we can do for many, many years and uh, find all kinds of ways to refine it. So he was talking about lying in this, but really it could go for any of those um, aspects of speech within this path, uh, within this um, factor. So, malicious, divisive, abusive, harsh, all of these are powerful forces. If you imagine what we're putting out into the world, whether it's through our mouths or an email or in a text, um, someone else is receiving those often. And... And it has an effect. And so we can flip that then and look at, well, what do we want to put out into the world? And we have this incredible ability to communicate things like happiness and being able to uh, connect with each other through our words. We're able to express gratitude and joy, sympathy, excitement, all of these things that bring us together. The ability to listen and have empathy for another, to be able to communicate in these ways is a way, a, a way to liberating the heart, a way of more and more seeing our connectedness with others and how much we really do long to be connected, not divisive. We want to be connected. That divisiveness is really just coming from a place of fear, isn't it? A place of protection, a place of not seeing clearly, of confusion. But when we are clear and we're coming from a place of wisdom, it's that connectedness that we cherish that feeling of sangha that we really love. I love that idle chatter is in this. It doesn't seem very harmful, does it? But think about it. When we are with people that we care about and we just are chatting for the sake of chatting, not for the sake of connection, not with the intention of care and love. It just fills that space, doesn't it? It just kind of, it fills the silence. It's a filler. It gets in the way of that connection. And so in that small way, I can see it as being harmful. 
it can have that divisive effect. If you've ever sat with somebody who just talks, 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 and you kind of wait for them to breathe so you can get in there to communicate something, there's not a real feeling of connectedness, of togetherness. And so I wonder, I don't know why exactly, but I wonder if this might be why at idle chatter is in here. It's just kind of the regurgitation of the mind and stimulates the mind in that way, that unguarded mind. And so idle chatter is another thing that we can look for. Those of you who are going home, uh, you'll notice the impulse to just chat, 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 chat. You've been so quiet for so long and everything just wants to come out. And to really watch that, see your See where your heart is when you're doing that. Is it connected or not? Does it feel good? Is that that feeling of dukkha there, that feeling of friction as you're doing it or not? And let that be your guide, really using your wisdom, your mindfulness to stay connected with what that's like. So the next factor on the Eightfold Path is wise action. And it's to abstain from killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. So just like our words, our actions are forces in this world. And they can be harmful or they can be harmless. I like to think of it as as if I was standing in front of a pond and I threw a big boulder into the middle of it. And from that action where that boulder hits the water, there's a ripple effect that beats out until it either dissipates or it hits something else and stops. But the reality is, it's not just me in this world throwing my boulders It's all of us together. And so it would be more accurate to say that we were all standing around that same pond throwing in boulders. And as that boulder hits the water, all of those ripples are going out and bouncing into each other, bumping into each other, affecting each other's effects. And that's kind of how it is, being in community. Our actions affect each other. And so when we are acting from a place of fear, um, a place of doubt, when we're acting from a place of harm, wanting to cause harm, jealousy, that does affect the people that we are around. We're most likely too, when we're acting in these ways, to repel the people that uh, are interested or are more in line with sila and more likely to attract those who are more comfortable with a lack of sila. I've noticed that just being young and have gone through many different phases uh, in my teen years and my young adult years. And when I wasn't in line with my virtue, I attracted the people who weren't in line with their virtue. And then when suddenly I started to see that and started to change my behaviors, the people, those people kind of faded away. I didn't have as much in common with them. And all of a sudden, these new people started coming into my life who really valued the new things that I was valuing. And so we really create the Sangha that in some ways... um, we deserve, or maybe deserve isn't the right word, but we certainly attract 
like people. And so how we are in this world is a big deal. It has a huge effect, not only on the other people, but just ourselves, on the type of community that we ended up, end up being surrounded by. Livelihood is the next one. And to me, they kind of go together, this wise action and right and wise livelihood. And the components of livelihood is um, uh, to not to be dishonest or cause harm in our work. I like to think of this, um, or I think of Gandhi's quote, to be the change you wish to see in the world. And this can mean many different things. And I think it really works for both um, wise live. Well, it works for all of the sila factors, doesn't it? To be the change that you wish to see in the world. And so with wise livelihood, I think that can mean a few different things. For some of us, maybe just on this retreat alone, you've been thinking about your livelihood and thinking about, uh, well, I just have so much to offer. You know, your heart starts to open and and you want to do something with that. I want to give back. I want to connect with people in a different way than I am right now. And so there might be this feeling like there's a change coming in terms of your actions and, and right livelihood. For others of you, you might be quite satisfied where you are, but you might... Uh, notice that you can increase your harmlessness your, and your sila by doing really simple things in your day-to-day. So it might be that you're an accountant and you find ways to really let your clients know that you care about them and you're happy to be with them and happy to work for them. Or you might find small ways to express gratitude or generosity. Being the change that you wish to see in the world. Finding these small ways to interact with people in your everyday that allow for that connection of heart and that ability to really tap into your ability for harmlessness. Sometimes I think that when we are stewing in this pot here at Spirit Rock or at any meditation center like this, when we're all going back out into the world, we're just this army force of goodness, (laughs) ready to show people, not even by our words, but really from our actions, how to live from a place of wisdom and compassion And so maybe that's what we'll do when we all leave this place. At least that's how I like to think of it. And we'll make our mistakes, but we've been really cultivating these abilities, and they're inside of each of you, just ready to burst out. (laughs) And so to stay in touch with that intention and that inner wisdom and that ability for compassion and openness and see how that affects your your actions, your speech, the way that you work in the world. For those of you who are staying, the same thing applies. You have yogi jobs, you have interviews. Noticing what type of integrity you bring to your yogi job. What is your mental attitude towards your yogi job? Is it coming from this place that is in line with an open heart, with generosity, with simpleness, with equanimity? Or does it feel closed? Does it feel aversive? Does it want something different than what's going on? Does it feel disconnected? Just noticing these things is what starts to open our eyes to the truth of how things are. Just these little moments within our day 
Sila is just another mindfulness bell. When we're acting from this place of virtue and harmlessness, we see it. We can really feel that and learn from it. But the same goes from when we're not acting from a place of virtue and harmlessness. We can see that. We can learn from that. And we can move from that, maybe in a different direction, making different choices. I'd like to read one more quote from the Dhammapada. All beings tremble before violence, all fear death, and all love life. See yourself and others, then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? He who seeks happiness by hurting those seeking happiness will never find happiness. For your brother, your sister is like you, He, she, wants to be happy. Never harm them. And when you leave this life, you too will find happiness. So he who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. So this is really pointing to our ability to cultivate and understand empathy. we start to recognize these states within ourselves. We tremble before violence. We fear death. We love life. This is common among all of us. We start to learn more and more that these mind states, these hindrances, they're alive in each of us. And the more and more that we can become familiar with them, we realize that pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. Love is love. Joy is joy. Our stories are all different. Our experiences are different. But there's this common thread that really connects us all. And so we can start to understand ourselves, and then understand all of those around us. We start to see just that, that thread of interconnectedness, that oneness in nothingness. <laughs> I want to tell you a story about a little boy named Ricky. I, a few years ago, I was working with a bunch of kids, elementary school kids over the summer, and we um, were teaching them mindfulness, among other things, and the group was pretty rowdy. It was a summer program, and so they had lots of energy and were all over the place. And I just remember this one boy, we'll call him Ricky, and he has, he's just this short little kid with freckles and this matted orange hair and was so cute but just completely off the wall. He was just all over the place and bumping into other kids and always making messes and leaving them. And in the beginning I would I was really patient with him and, you know, okay Ricky, I need your attention here or Ricky, I need you to pick this up or, you know, what's going on over here? And but then after a while, I felt more like an exasperated parrot. Just, Ricky, 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 Ricky. He just was everywhere and nowhere where I needed him. <laughs> I was just losing it. And so when I would interact with him, there was this tightness and this just wanting him to do what I needed him to do. And then in, in that moment, just this lack of patience and this one day, we decided to take them out for an uh, outside game that we were going to play. And so we were walking on the sidewalk, and you know we've got maybe 14, 15 kids all in a line, and there's a few of us teachers. 
And it's one of those moments where you really need everyone to pay attention and follow the rules. And I'm leading the line, and I hear behind me the other kids going, Ricky, stop it, stop it, Ricky. And he's pushing his way through the line and just doing his thing. And I finally just thought, I'm going to lose it. And I turned around, and I stopped the kids, and I said, Ricky, what is going on? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. (laughs) And there was this moment where we're both looking at each other, and I realized we are in the same mind state (laughs) of pure frustration and just not knowing what is going on. He was as clueless as I was. And it was this beautiful recognition of seeing that we are just the same, you and I, right now. So I said, Ricky, come here. And he put his head down like he was going to get in trouble. And I just gave him this big hug. And I said, I see you, buddy. I see you. And he just looked up at me. And it was all he needed was just that needing to be seen. And I share this story (laughs) because I think it's a good example in several different ways. One, just our interaction with each other. We sometimes hold other people to such amazing standards, even though (laughs) we might be doing or have the same fallibility as they do. But also, Ricky is like our mind, our inner experience too. How often do you have those mind states where you're just, Ricky, 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 sit down, stop it, shut up. What is going on? And the mind is, I don't know, I'm just doing my thing. And this is how it is. And so if we can really hold not only each other with this empathy and understanding and compassion, seeing just how connected we really are, but also ourselves and our own ability to just not know what's going on. And we can really hold ourselves in that, in those places of just not seeing clearly and being so stuck with it, just causing all kinds of havoc, all kinds of harm, and to be able to open to even that. And that's part of what we're doing here, isn't it? Over and over again. Just loving that little Ricky inside of us all. (laughs) As humans, we're just so valuable, aren't we? It's why we recite the precepts. We, We forget. We just forget. We forget to be harmless. It seems reasonable enough, right? We don't want to cause harm, but we forget even that. In this tradition, there's, I believe, stemming all the way back from the time of the Buddha, there's a beautiful uh, ceremony. And I want to say it right, so let me see if I can find it. Pavarana. I think that's right. And this, uh, this is a gathering where the monks and nuns will come together in their sangha, in their community. And really atone for the mistakes that they've made for that month. And it starts with the head abbot and goes all the way down to the novice monk. And with uh, pure humility, each one coming forward and stating their humanness and the community holding that with forgiveness. And they do this I believe, every full moon or every month. And so that's part of our tradition and part of what we end up needing in order to really complete this exploration of harmlessness is to be able to see our humanness and to allow space for forgiveness. It's really, it's why we need community. It's to remind us of the things that 
we forgot the things that we know. But we're just confused, we're stuck in it. And so we're here to remind each other. These, these uh, teachings are here to remind you. The books and tapes and all of those lovely reminders are here to remind you, to bring you back. So we are practicing this ability to hold each other and ourself in the Brahma Viharas, this cultivation of true harmlessness through loving kindness, through compassion, delight, joy for each other, for ourselves, and equanimity. And so I'll end by reading the Rumi poem one more time. I'll meet you there. Out beyond ideas and wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, Even the phrase, each other, doesn't make sense. So let's just sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.